My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. This is America. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. It is my greatest honor and privilege to have been your president. We will be back in some form. We are still deeply divided. Public health experts warned this was coming unless more was done. And here we are now. Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely. Never before in American history has there been an uprising like this. Of the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know how many today are feeling, dear God, what was I thinking? But I would wager a lot more are thinking, let's carry on this fight. Character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters. The 21st century is going to be the American century. Because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America. Verdict. We, the jury, have reached our verdict as to damages in this case. We award damages to each plaintiff and against Alex Jones and Free Speech System LLC as follows. Alex Jones must pay $965 million in damages to numerous families of victims of the 2012 Sandy Hook mass shooting for falsely claiming they were actors who faked the whole tragedy. Today on Irishman in America, we look at that verdict in Connecticut. What, if anything, is the impact of a case like this on those who are willing to spread misinformation in the lead up to 2024? and the presidential race. How is America cracking down on this kind of thing? And will Alex Jones actually have to pay this amount? Later on, is it possible that the upcoming 2022 midterms could be the last free and fair elections in the US for the foreseeable future? The combination of election denier candidates and cases before the Supreme Court, Sunday Business Post US correspondent Mary McKeown is here, as always, to dig a little bit deeper into all of this. We've lots more on top of that in the second half of the show over on Patreon. But Marion, let's get straight to it. We're here literally minutes after the verdict came in. I'm delighted that you were able to jump on. Thanks so much for making time to do this. What was your first response when you heard the news? My first response was literally, Jarrett, wow, because we're talking about a billion dollars in damages that have now been awarded the guts of a billion dollars that have been awarded against Alex Jones in this case. Now, we spoke a couple of weeks or was it a month ago even more when the case in Austin, when that verdict came down and that was for $45 million and that was awarded to two people and that court in Texan law said they put caps on damages, etc. It's possible only $5 million that will ever be paid. But this took place in a Connecticut court. Connecticut is, of course, where Sandy Hook is. It's where these children were actually killed, the 20 children who were aged six and seven, and um, six of their educators, including the school principal. It's where they were all killed. And it's where Alex Jones made a fortune off the backs of that tragedy, not by milking the tragedy, but by denying it ever happened. His claim was always that the grieving parents were hard actors, that the children were never killed, the families didn't exist, it was all a giant hoax, and it was created to take away people's guns. Now, one of the metrics that that the jury was handed by one of the defence lawyers, and there were 15 plaintiffs in total, they related to not eight of the, the people killed, seven children and the principal. There was also an FBI agent who said he was slandered by Alex Jones to the point where his career was destroyed. That what, what we heard, what these plaintiffs suffered beyond the deaths of their children 
was just horrendous, just because of what Alex Jones had said and done to make money, to monetize their grief and the deaths of these little children. One one of the parents said that his seven-year-old son was killed, that Infowars and Alex Jones, Alex Jones supporters had um, urinated on his son's grave. They'd threatened to dig up his son's body. The daughter of the headmistress of Sandy Hook was repeatedly threatened with rape by Alex Jones supporters and people who did insist that this is all a hoax and, you know, everything in between. As I say, their lives were destroyed when they lost their children and in the case of of that woman when she lost her mother in the shooting, but then they were destroyed over and over by Alex Jones and his followers who tormented them, who told to them, who threatened their lives, who threatened to burn their houses down, who, as I said, threatened to dig up the bodies of their dead children to prove that they didn't exist, allegedly. I mean, it, it, the torment, it, you cannot, it's really, it's hell upon hell. That, as I'm okay, well, let me jump in really quick there, because there may be some people coming to this going that they've heard the name Alex Jones, they were aware this trial has taken place, but maybe you can try and put into words, how does he have all these followers? What are these followers and how are they so rabid that they would do something like that and take what he was saying on face value in the first place? Right. Alex Jones is an Austin based. He has his system, his free speech systems, as it is called now, his company, which is a sort of an umbrella company for, you know, it's called talk radio. I would say it's hate radio because everything that comes out is attacking people. He's a conspiracy theorist. He's to the very far right. He would have a lot of QAnon affiliations, I would say, but not only does he have this talk radio show, which is listened to, which he, he runs himself, he owns the whole thing, the whole studio systems, everything. He has millions and millions and millions of listeners. And as well as pumping out this vitriol and hatred and disinformation on a daily basis. He also sells a whole line of supplements, which are oh, yeah. probably about as as credible as what he, he spews out on the airwaves. But he makes upwards of $800,000 a day. That was the figure that was given about two to three years ago. I think it's safe to say that he is certainly raking in well over $300 million a year. So if you figure that this award that was just made was made. It's almost a billion dollars. So it is what it's two, two and a half, or maybe almost three years' work for him. Three years' work from a little over that. Now I've no doubt that this will absolutely put a huge dent in his free speech system slash infowar company. But he has made so much money just since the shootings alone, since the mm. massacres of Sandy Hook alone ten years ago. If you figure that he's been making three hundred a year. Since then, that's what three billion dollars. So it's hard to feel any simply for him. Now, one of the metrics, sorry, and I, I got distracted there, Giles. I apologize. Hmm. One of the plaintiff lawyers said to the jury, "Look, um, if you figure five hundred and fifty million people viewed his information, or listened in, or you know absorbed the information that he put out about the Sandy Hook hoax, so five hundred and fifty, there were five hundred fifty million hits." or tune-ins or whatever into his various broadcasts and what have you. Uh, and so he said, if you just award one dollar 
per hit because it would have been a lot more than that, of course, with advertising and everything else and all the spin-offs. And, the, and in the event, the jury awarded almost twice that. So that would have been a $550 million award if they had done what one of the plaintiff's lawyers asked. But they went way beyond that. They went $400 million plus dollars beyond that. And I think it really is, you know, I think for people who haven't been living in the States, who haven't been exposed to the real revulsion of what he did and the absolute cynicism of it, because you may remember during the Austin trial again a while back, he suddenly said, oh, I don't really believe it anymore. Okay, hands up. It wasn't a hoax because he was trying to minimize the damages at that stage. When that didn't work, he went straight back again, saying that it was all a hoax. And I think just that people are aware, you know, 26 and seven-year-old children who just went to their kindergarten school and never came home, six of their teachers, the same thing. And that this guy has been for years making millions and millions and millions of dollars just off the back of denying what happened and saying they made it all up. It never happened. And that on its own would be bad enough. But the reaction that triggered amongst, as we said, his followers, who then attacked these people again on top of their grief and threatened them. People, parents of sadly hooked victims have committed suicide. They haven't been able to tolerate not just the grief, but the horror of what this has visited upon them. I would say that there is no penalty too great for what Alex Jones has done, that there is no money. There's obviously no money that can make these parents' lives, make make their lives, fix them again or make them whole. But it, it is at least sending out a signal to all those other people who have decided. And as we know, the trend, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Matt Gateses, the talk radio people, the shock jocks who think that there is money to be made, and there is, and a lot of it, in scraping the outside of the barrel, of the, the bottom of the barrel, with hatred, with lies, with conspiracy theories, that there actually is a penalty, that you mm. will pay for this. And, you know, I would imagine that Donald Trump right now is a little bit nervous because he was ordered just this week to to hand over his deposition, to sit for the deposition in the E. Jean Carroll defamation rape case, even though we're not sure if the defamation case will be going ahead. But the judge in charge, Matthias Kaplan, said, you know what, you're going to sit for it anyway. You know, we'll see there's an appeal going on, but there's no reason that you shouldn't give your deposition pending the outcome of the appeal to the Washington circuit. And so if if this is the level, if the... Now, obviously, you cannot compare defamations, and I am not comparing in terms of what... what uh, E. Jean Carroll alleges to the knowing that all of these children were killed and that their parents and families were put through hell afterwards. But that if if juries are taking a view that, you know, you do not injure somebody and then defame them on top of that and then call them a liar for speaking about their injury. I think that if I were anybody that gets a defamation case at the moment, I'd be feeling pretty nervous. Well, just to put to you a couple of things that his supporters have said. Like one response to this is that he never directed anybody to do this. This wasn't a case of we're going to march down there. That what kind of a precedent does it set that a broadcaster says something and then the response to it is his fault or his or her fault? That's just one of the things that's that's doing the rounds this evening. Yeah, and you know, this will be appealed. Obviously, it'll be appealed. The amount will be appealed. This is not the end of this case. I think that you have a chain of causality here because if if you if Alex Jones had said nothing, 
if he had said nothing or if he had just offered his sympathy to those parents, they would not, I find it very hard to believe that they would have been subject to this. He was really, you know, he lit the fuse. And I think that that is where his culpability lies. And he didn't just light the fuse. He made vast amount of money out of it and, and really got himself known as a name from coast to coast in America on the back of this, whether people abhorred him or admired him. This was how he, this brought him so much money as I said, he monetized their tragedy to a degree that was truly appalling. So And admitted on the stand that he yeah. knew yeah. That, it was, that it was a real mass shooting. Yeah. But, you know, he, he admitted that he has since gone backwards and forwards on it. And he it was very clear that he was saying, OK, you know what? It was real, you know, in a last ditch attempt to try and minimize the award against him. It, it seemed pretty cynical. You know, you've been saying for a decade that it's a hoax, it's a hoax. And then suddenly you go, whoops, maybe it was real after all. Um mm. The jury didn't bite. I mean, there's always, and I think it's a really valid point. What What is, it's like Donald Trump with January 6th, not to beat on about Donald Trump, but, um, you know, saying and basically implying that there would be hell to pay, basically, if he didn't win the election and that would have been stolen and, you know, his followers wouldn't stand for it, etc. Is there, and you know, him standing up on, on the ellipse that day and saying, fight like hell. If you don't fight like hell, you won't have a country anymore. Did he light that fuse? I mean, I, I arguably that's harder to prove in some respects. And uh, these people were were exercised and angry anyway. But I think in this case, I think a jury would, and I think an appeal court would say, you know, had he not done this, had he not, and he didn't just do it once, he did it over and over and over. Would these people have threatened these families in this way? Would you know? I and I think not. Now Probably again, you know, the that, yeah. size of the award may be contested. Well, people may say it's too much. What were the guidelines? What were the parameters? Again, all of this will play out. But I think that the powerful message at the moment is you. It is not acceptable and you will pay for conspiracy theories of this nature and that cause this level of destruction on a human level. Well, this is the thing. Will it send that message if he doesn't actually have to pay it? Because we know that when Alex Jones was ruled liable by default in the Sandy Hook cases, he immediately began transferring $11,000 a day into shell companies he controls. This is not me saying this. This is Bernard Pettengill Jr., an economic consultant, who told the jury this on Friday last. I think, I'm not sure if it was Friday last, but this is fact. I mean, this is yeah. a man has been moving his money in preparation for this moment. Yeah. So if the aim was to send this message, this big, you will pay if you engage in this kind of misinformation and conspiracy theory then what message does it send if he doesn't actually have to pay? And surely there are others like him in the wings going, yeah, not the worst outcome. You know, you're a bit smarter with your money and how you do it. There's a way of doing this and getting extremely rich. 
You know, I actually think that this will will soften the coughs of a lot of people who make their money on, on hatred. I really do, because you know, it. Of course, Alex Jones has been salting, you know, money away, as as was said during the case. Of course, he's going to declare bankruptcy, but there are penalties for this. He's already declared bankruptcy of in, of info wars. It was seen to be a phony bankruptcy. You know, there are forensic accountants, there are forensic investigators, there are forensic white collar criminal investigators who will go and will be able to see through these shell companies who will be able to claw this money back. If there are sheriffs who are making these awards, they can go and take every asset of his, his studio, his house, his cars, you know, all of his supplements for what they're worth. They, they will make his life very, very uncomfortable. If they don't get the full billion, they will take what they can or as close to it as damage, and they will go after, you know, the fact that he has put money in shell companies doesn't necessarily put it beyond the court's reach. And particularly if it's shown that it was done so specifically to avoid the enforcement of a court's judgment and of a verdict. So mm. I, I don't think that anybody who makes money in this manner is going to be thinking, well, that was a good one. That was a good okay. result, you know. So I think they're all going to be a bit worried. And it's as it should be because everyone's entitled to free speech, but not to, as I say, not in the way that he has done to foment dissent, to foment hatred. And the cruelty of what he has done for a decade is, is really unspeakable. Yeah, I mean, there has to be limits. I mean, that's surely there what the, the yeah. verdict tries to reimpose. The idea of, yeah. I can say whatever the fuck I like, for yeah. entertainment's sake, yeah. is what's being reinforced here. But it's mad that this is where we've got to at this point, that that's, that's a message that the courts are trying to send. Is that in preparation for 2024? It does lead us to the second item we wanted to discuss today, which is you know the jeopardy of free and fair elections that they find themselves in at this point. Is this case and is this verdict directly pointed at what's on the horizon, Marion? Uh, unfortunately, I think not. I, I think that the real, you know, I used to think I was an optimist, but now I'm really, <laughs> now I think I've just become a realist. I think I've been beaten down to reality, if nothing else, <laughs> um, over the years. My real concerns about the midterms now, you know, everybody knows the midterms, midterms are coming. It's They're less than four weeks away. Mm. And the tradition has always been that the party that holds the White House gets their asses kicked in the midterms because it's a referendum on the president, the new president. And new presidents never, ever, ever live up to their billing because, as we all know, you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. And some of them can't even put two words together in prose. So it's not, you know, it's, it's even worse than that. So, as I say, Joe Biden has disappointed a lot of people, he's frustrated a lot of people. On top of that, we have galloping inflation, we have petrol prices, which have now started to go up again because OPEC decided to kick him in the shins last week. And, uh, you know, so there is a big expectation that the House will be lost. And, you know, that is survivable. So that means the House of Representatives in Congress, there are 435 congressional members. At the moment, 220 are Democrats, 212, I'm going to say, are Republicans, and there are three vacant seats. Now, as so you can see, the, 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 the Democratic majority is way for 10. All it takes is five seats to flip. 
which would be nothing, which would be negligible by midterm standards, and they lose control of the House. Just to put that in context, in 2018, Donald Trump lost 40 seats. You know, so as I said, five seats would be nothing. It would be a victory by mm. any other name, but for the fact that it will it will flip the house. So if that happens, life will become very tricky for Joe Biden, but not as tricky as if he loses the Senate as well as the House, in which case he's a lame duck president for two years because he will get nothing done for the next two years. But again, worse than that, and I know it may seem bizarre, is that where the real threat to democracy, I think, is going to be in the short term and, and medium term, is in the state races. So in every state in America, there are different races going on because you don't just have this the legislatures in uh, Washington. You don't just have the House of Congress in Washington and the Senate. That is replicated in each of the 50 states. Each state has its own Senate, its own House, and its own governor, its own lieutenant governor, the equivalent of vice president, and its own secretary of state and, all, and attorney general and all these roles. Now, in at least four swing states, in at least four, you have people who are running to become the secretary of state of their local state. Now, it is confusing because normally you think secretary of state, oh yeah, that's the chap who flies all around the world. That's the Mike Pompeo or the Hillary Clinton or the Tony Blinken of the moment, you know, who turn up and, and sign all these treaties. Secretary of State at a state level, at the level of each of the 50 individual states, is the person who decides how the elections are run, who decides how the votes will be counted, how many ballot boxes will be put out, and if there will be a recount. So basically, each Secretary of State in each state really has enormous powers to control the outcome of the election. Now, at the moment, in four of the swing states, and also Texas, and also a couple of other states, the Republican candidates are not just election deniers, as in they have said they are campaigning and running to become their Secretary of State and to control their elections on the basis of saying, Donald Trump had the election stolen in 2020, and we are not going to let that happen in 2024. Now, one example is a guy called Jim Marchant, who I think we spoke about before, Charles. He's running to be the Secretary of State in Nevada, the Republican Secretary of State in Nevada, which is one of the swing states. And he had he's formed this coalition of, it's called America First, for Secretaries of State, basically. And he has pledged that, and his words, not mine, that he will fix it in 2024 if he's elected so that Donald Trump will win Nevada. So, you know, he they're not even pretending it's going to be a free and fair election there. Mm. He has said I we he will fix it. Okay? And wow. that Donald Trump will win Nevada in 2024 or his Republican replacement. The same thing has been said by um goodness, I've spoken about her before as well, Christina Carmano. I we spoke about her being the Republican candidate for Michigan, another vitally important swing state. And um, she claimed that she was sitting as an election observer in the, the polling place in Detroit. She claimed that she saw massive election fraud taking place in the Detroit center. There were security cameras and there was footage, it absolutely proved without doubt that she was lying. But she is still the Republican candidate for Secretary of State for Michigan. And again, if she gets in, she has likewise pledged that no matter what it takes, she will hand Michigan to Donald Trump 
in 2024. And the same is true of Mark Fincham, an absolute lunatic down in Arizona who has said the same thing as well. He was at the Capitol during the January 6th attack. He's running for Secretary of State of Arizona. Audrey Trujillo in New Mexico, likewise. And then you also have governors who are elected deniers, like Greg Abbott in Texas. He's got a guy, Dan Patrick, his uh, lieutenant governor, who's um, also an absolute election denier. His um, Ken Paxton, his attorney general. All of these people, they've brought in some of the most draconian voter suppression laws ahead of 2022, but they're really going to be up and running in 2024. And their Secretary of State is likewise, you know, he's been more muted about the outright militant election denying, but he's in the can for, you know, he's the appointee of Greg Abbott and he's going to do what Greg Abbott tells him. So that's just, as I say, a sample of what will be going on in these midterms. And if these guys win and women, um, you will have these Republicans who are secretaries of state in elections are won and lost on seven or eight states. And, you know, we know them. It's it's um, Nevada, it's Arizona, it's Michigan, it's Pennsylvania, it's Florida, and a couple of others. Ohio, yes, no, maybe. I think it's a red state now, but it's still categorized as a swing. Uh, Wisconsin's another swing state. And these are where these people are all running, and they're running on, like, their ticket, their whole platform is, vote for me and I'll get Trump over the line in 24. So th they, this is, it, wow. you know, so let's say hypothetically that they win. Then you've got a situation in 2024 that is already terrifying. But added to that, you have two cases again, which we've discussed, Charles, that are coming up before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has indicated in at least one of them that it's inclined, at least four of the conservative members have indicated they're inclined to go with the plaintiffs. One of the cases is about it, um, it deals with Alabama and the redistricting has happened in Alabama in such a way that even though 30% of the uh, population is black, uh, they will have only one black representative in Congress out of their seven seats. And the Supreme Court has indicated it's going to say, yeah, well, you know what, that's okay. We don't really care. You know, that's that's not nothing to do with us. The other case is more sinister, I think. It's a case where what the plaintiffs are trying to establish is that it's the state legislature, not even the Secretary of State that we've just spoken about, that decides who won an election. And that would mean, loosely translated, you have 26 or 27 states in America that are run and controlled by Republicans. So the legislature and the Senate is completely controlled by Republicans, and that is not going to change. That, that What they want is the right to say, we don't care if Joe Biden got every vote in this state. We say he lost and nobody can challenge us. And and this is under what? some ancient theory that goes back to 1835. And we know that the current Supreme Court loves ancient theories that have no place in America anymore. And so that, to me, th th that would lay the groundwork for an authoritarian state, basically. It would take away the power of the voters. It would take away the power of the courts to overrule these legislators if they send false electors up to Washington. Um, and it would basically mean it, it would be a free-for-all. So American democracy is under threat. We've said it over and over, but I think that you sort of feel that there's a lot of whistling paths the graveyard going on, that people are going, well, it's still okay. Well, we, you know, we got past January 6th and we saw that, you know, even though the stress test and the institutions of democracy were, were tested, they passed. That doesn't mean anything because the, t the attacks are, are ongoing. And at the moment, there is unbelievably and tragically a Supreme Court in America 
that is amenable to helping mm. these people. Well, let's say let's say none of that happens. Yeah. Just for a moment, because yeah. what you're describing there will have people <laughs> skipping back in the podcast to go to. She did, is this actually is what she's saying possible? Uh, but let's say none of it happens. Okay. To let's me, hope. the big the big threat is mm. the reality of violence in. Uh, as a consequence to the outcomes of elections, but even just to those going to polls, that it feels like the reality of violence in America in relation to the democratic process is much more real than it's ever been in my lifetime and probably yours. Surely that's where the real threat to democracy lies because that doesn't rely on this person being elected, this institution doing this, the Supreme Court doing that. It's just a general fear that I'm not sure I want to enrage anybody. Maybe I won't show up to the polls and a fear that you know the worst can happen if I were to vote that way. Weirdly, that's not something that I'm that worried about, because if you look at the 60s and 70s, when African-Americans were beaten, they were attacked, they were killed, they were killed horrifically, and poll watchers and, and people who were trying to help register them, we saw all that happen in the South in the 60s. It didn't stop them voting and it didn't stop them turning up. And I think if you even look at countries like Kenya, where, you know, it, it is a democratic country and periodically there's been massive violence around Election Day and thereafter, where hundreds and hundreds of people have been killed at a time. And it doesn't necessarily stop people from turning up to cast their votes. We saw, you know, in, in, in countries like Afghanistan, when it was briefly almost are attempting to be democratic where people would turn up even though the voting booths were being blown up around them. And in America, America is well prepared. It does have law enforcement that I think by and large, we know the Proud Boys are there. We know that the three percenters are there. We know that a lot of military and police are, you know, supportive of, if not actively involved with these right-wing groups. But I think that you know, you would have, in a worst case scenario, you would have the army, you have state um, troops, you have the National Guard. I think that if there was violence around Election Day, around the polling booths, even something like January 6th, you have a, a law enforcement and a, a military that is well equipped to deal with that. So that that to me wouldn't be the problem. The problem to me would be, as I said, the Supreme Court doing its damage and um, the putting in place of people, as we said, like Finch and like Paramo and um, like Merchant, who will actively and have said that they will do, that they will fix it for Trump or his Republican equivalent. And the other thing that we really haven't spoken enough about is voter suppression, because you don't need to threaten people with violence. When you do, for example, what's happening in Georgia, where you take a part of northeastern Georgia, where there were seven areas you could bring your ballots before for people who didn't have cars, who who lived in rural areas where there were no buses, and now there's just one. So you can stop people voting that way very effectively. You can stop people, you know, I think it's 19 states have now, Republican states, have brought in really stringent, they're saying it's anti-fraud measures, but it's they are measures that will you know, limit the number of, of drop-off places, will limit the, the number of hours that they're open, will make it just much more difficult generally for people to cast their votes because of new 
changes to both ID laws that they may not be able to get, you know, their stuff done in time by limiting mail-in voting. All of these will probably shave off about 10% of people or 10 to 15% of people will find it a lot harder to vote than they did in 2020. Now, I assume that you have people like Stacey Abrams, but there's only one of her who will, who is such a formidable organizer that they, in 2020, the reason Georgia turned blue in 2020 was not because Georgians suddenly went, oh my God, after 100 years of sending Republicans to Washington, we've suddenly changed our minds. And after 100 years of pretty well voting for Republican presidents, we've gone Democrat. What happened was they got the voters out. Stacey Abrams set up this massive, with help from other formidable people, a get out the voter drive of registration and then getting people to the polls. And that's why for the first time in Georgia's history, it sent two Democrats and senators and voted for a Democratic president because the people who would be inclined to vote Democrat were suppressed in the past by not being able to get to the polls and not having the wherewithal to do everything that was needed. And so it, this is what the Republican legislators are targeting in their states. They don't want these people voting. And so they have done what they could to target this and to target these people to make it difficult for them to vote again, to try and keep that turnout low. And, you know, turnout's low midterms anyway, although apparently this time I just saw that about 60 percent of Americans are saying they're interested in these midterms and they're interested in voting. And that's about twice what, what normally turns up. It's usually about 30, 35 percent who will actually bother to turn out at all. But I think Roe v. Wade has um, motivated people, not just that, but it's one of the motivating factors on the side who would vote Democrat. And the high petrol crisis, the economy, immigration, are things that are really motivating people and, and Roe v. Wade on the other side who are tied to vote Republican. And we all know that angry voters turn out. If you're happy and you think, oh my God, everything's going great, you don't yeah. turn out. If you're pissed off, you do. Well, I, I guess I'll have to link the article that brought me to the conclusion that violence was on the horizon. And I, in that article, uh, it cited a couple of recent polls that suggested that 38% of Americans believe the losing side will peacefully concede in future elections. Just 38%. Another poll suggested that 54% of Americans believe that America will be less of a democracy for future generations. Now, that's kind of the conclusion you're arriving at there, Marion. I'm sure we'll return to this topic again. But we've so much more to get to in the second half of our discussion uh, over on Patreon for the proud supporters of this show. We'll talk about Harvey Weinstein and his medieval conditions that he's being kept in before his trial. We'll also talk about how President Joe Biden has addressed the possibility of his son, Hunter Biden, being prosecuted for tax crimes and a false statement during a gun purchase. And we'll get Marion's recommendation for this weekend. You don't want to miss it. Come on over and join us. Support the show and allow us to continue to make it over on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Ready? You have the cameras rolling? This is America. A lot of people who would probably consider themselves liberal have done very well financially under the Donald Trump four years. You encouraged espionage against our people. You condemn any interference by Russia in the American election. By Russia or anybody else. Russia, please, if you can, get us Hillary Clinton's emails. Please, Russia, please. To renew America, we must revitalize our democracy.